So the question is this, how do most agents succeed in today's competitive real estate market when all the successful agents are keeping the secrets to themselves? So that's the question, and this podcast will give you the answer. I interview agents from all over the world. I ask them their tactics, and they share all of their secrets with me so we can give them to the world. I'm Aaron Amuchastegui, and welcome to Real Estate Rockstars. Real Estate Rockstars, this is Aaron Amuchastegui. Hey, we're releasing this in the middle of May, so but I promise you it's not too late to be releasing the special podcast that gives you the best clips from all of our April podcasts. This is one of those episodes where we take a few minutes from each of the people that I interviewed in April, let you listen to it, and see if there's somebody that you missed that you need to make sure that you go back and listen to. The year is a little bit more than a third of the way over. I hope you guys are crushing your goals. And I promise you, even though this one is coming out a couple weeks too late, the it is still very, very timely info. So first up, here's episode 1133 with why every realtor should write a book with Chandler Bolt. Here's a few minutes of that episode. But somebody says like, okay, I can write a book, but I don't make it, but people don't make money writing books. Like I've heard, you know, everyone says, I've heard that no one makes money writing books, which I believe is true if you're trying to figure out your cost of book based on how many people buy it. So is that true? Is that false? And or, um, you know, why should someone write one then? Yeah. So I'd say it it certainly is true for most people that you're not going to make a ton of money off the book unless you self-publish and sell a ton of copies. And then you're you're still probably not going to get rich uh, unless you're Hal Elrod, I guess, with American Warning. He's done crazy well with that. Uh, But the the bigger thing for a lot of people listening to this will be using a book to grow your business. And more specifically, how do you use the book to get more leads, sales, and referrals? And so why I think every real estate agent should write a book is it's a differentiator, right? You give someone, a lot of people say the book is a new business card. I think a book is better than a business card. You give someone a business card, they're probably going to throw it away within 24 hours, right? You give them a book, they're going to keep that book. And every time they see that book, they think of you. And so that's where, you know, my mom's a real estate agent and I've been telling her for years, mom, you need to write a book. That's about like the 10 things you need to know before buying real estate in insert the local market or city that you're in. Right. Or, uh, you know, uh, 10 things to know before hiring, hiring a realtor to buy a home in XYZ, the city that you're living in, even something as simple as that. And then what I would do is I would paint, the earth with those books. And so I would go to chamber of commerce. I would go, I mean, your own, uh, you know, whatever the brokerage that you're at, put them out in the lobby, right? People come in, they're going to say, Oh, that's interesting. They're going to grab a copy of the book. If they got the choice to work with one of multiple realtors at your office, who do you think they're going to work with? Maybe one of the, maybe there's a bunch more things people ask, but I think the next thing people ask is like, okay, I know I want to write a book. I know I should write a book. But man, I don't have the time to do this. Like it's re- like, or, or it's really hard. Or they go back to like, but I could really never. I'm a bad writer. I'm a bad whatever. And so the um, so what do you guys do at, at you know with your company that helps people with that? Or what would you say to people that feel that way? Yeah, I'd say two things. Number one is I have a process that we teach is called the more writing method. And so it's really, there's, there's eight steps to writing and publishing a book. The first four are the more writing method. It's mind map, outline, rough draft, editing. Um, and so follow the more writing method. You'll, it, 
it's the, it's the process that I had your crew go through is like, Hey, let's start mind mapping. And yep. I can't tell you how many people came up to me after that talk and said, I never thought I would write a book yeah. and check out this mind map <laughs> and I can do this. And so start with a mind map. That would be the very practical thing is, Hey, as soon as you're done listening to this or watching um, this interview, take 15 minutes, mind map, everything you could think of on the topic for your book. Um, and then practically how we help people is um, we have, we guide them through the process and then we do a bunch of the legwork uh, around the actual publishing. Um, but we clarify, help clarify your idea. We meet with you one-on-one, -on -one. we assign you a coach. There's a bunch of templates to make the process easier and simpler. And then we do kind of all those final mile publishing, like, all right, now I got to have a cover formatting, ISBN upload distribution, like all that stuff. We just do all that for people so that you can do what you do well. Um, and we kind of just help, help make that process easier and simpler. All right. So if you like that one and you're thinking about writing a book, go listen to the rest of episode 1133. You know, so next up, one of the things that we did in April is Shelby Johnson. She interviewed me about my story. When we were hanging out at one of the masterminds, she said, Hey, why haven't you been interviewed yet? So people can hear it. The interview went so long. We broke it up into three parts, but each of them have some really specific parts of my journey that, uh, that so far everybody has really loved listening to. I love all the emails and messages I got from people that were excited to learn a little bit more about me. But here's first part. Here's a few minutes of episode 1134, Aaron's story from having it made to making ends meet. Yeah, so by the time I'm like getting ready to leave prison, I've now done a couple years in school. I'm trying to research what I'm gonna do next. And I'm like, all right, so I have this real estate background. I was studying architecture. I don't really like to do that anymore. I really like this business development stuff. Um, and I start researching and there's this uh, degree called construction management. I'm like, okay, I wanna get a construction management degree. And I start looking at the schools that have it. And it was like, oh, there was like four or five different schools in California. And the one that was the best was uh, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And I see like, hey, that one's on the ocean. I'm like looking at stuff on maps. Um, who had no internet access back like in there, even though internet existed, obviously the, yeah. like we weren't allowed to have any of that. So we're like looking, I'm like looking through books about construction management and then looking on, on the map going, Hey, that's a pretty, uh, cool place. I think I want to do that. I remember going back and telling my buddy, Darren, who was, was my roommate at the time. Hey, I think I want to say this. And I think I want to go to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And he goes, you'll never believe this. My aunt Wanda works admissions at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. What? And I'm like, you're, are you kidding? Really? He goes, no, yeah. she works there. Like, so I've got like four or five months left to where I'm supposed to leave. And the, and he reaches out to her. And, um, the oh day God. I get out of prison, I get like on my way home, I get to stop and meet with the head of the construction management department and the admissions department, uh, on my way back to Oregon. I was going to have to go back for a few months of like probation and parole and some other stuff. And I hadn't gotten accepted yeah. to any school yet, but like the day I got out getting to go like meet with them and talk to them about like, what do they do and my future uh, and things like that to fast forward, yeah. like to jump through some, some next hoops. Right. So I'm off to the races now at this point. I'm like, I've lost a lot of my life. I need to make up for lost time. I'm a really, really hard worker right now. I go back for the summer. I'm still taking college classes. My mission was to get accepted to the school. I got accepted uh, to go to, to school down there at Cal Poly. Hey. How old are you and what year? So the, the 2003 at that point, like I'm 23. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And I, and I, so I, I jumped down to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. The, now, by the time 2005 happens, I'm about ready to graduate. There's this nationwide competition 
um, that they do where schools compete against each other in the home building industry. Well, I won it uh, my junior and senior year at Cal Poly. I, so my team won be, uh, best in the nation two years in a row. It never happened before where one person had, won, had been on the same, had been on the team twice uh, when they won. Um, and that Badass. was in 2005, which was also the height of the housing boom. So like it couldn't yeah, be a better time timing. to be the best oh in the world God. at uh, home building as far as new students. It helped that I was older, right? So now I'm graduating in 2005. I'm 25 years old because I had lost a couple years of my life. I took school a little bit more serious than the other people that were in there and I was paying right. for it myself. So every time I walked into class, I was saying I need to earn. So that the funny this maybe this is where bonus time comes from. I was like, I'm paying $500 a class pretty much. And so the $500 every time I stepped into a classroom because of how expensive the out-of-state tuition was. And I, and I would always say like, what am I going to learn today that's worth the 500 bucks? And in the construction management classes, there was a lot of times like through estimating processes or something else. I'm like, oh, that's what I learned today. That was the thing that was worth the money uh, for me to get through. So I graduated in 2005, all sorts of getting all sorts of uh, recruit, recruitment from big home builders saying, hey, Aaron, they're, they're taking me out to dinner. Come work for us. This is what you got to do. I ended up choosing a home builder that I'd done a couple internships with in the Santa Barbara area. And the reason I, I chose to work with them, it was a small privately owned builder. There was like six or seven executives, um, but they were in California, Nevada, and Arizona. And I saw this as an opportunity to get near the top of a company, right? If I was going to yeah. join Pulte, I was never going to be in the corporate office. But if I joined something like this, I had a chance of starting out higher up and getting more opportunity. Up. So when they, when people see how my wife gets to live and the kids and all the stuff that we spend money on and, and the expenses, they don't know that, you know, that she was, you know, pregnant as a waitress at a casino, getting smoke blown yeah. on her. Well, you know, like while we were really trying to make it the, for, when we first started bidding at auctions, she was bidding at auctions at one of them while I was another one with our baby on her. She would have uh, Maddie in a stroller and Charlotte like in her chest while she was at auctions some of the time bidding at, at, or driving houses and stuff together. People see what's now. They don't see the battle. Exactly. 18 months of trials. We were battling through for that. Something magical happened for us that first moment of auction though, because like, so we tried a whole bunch of businesses. We went, made a really big bet on that one house at auction and we got it. The next three or four weeks we went to auction and the same way, like, oh, this house is scheduled and none of the houses that were on our list actually got sold. So we realized like, Oh my gosh, this is like actually a really hard business. We had to learn this new strategy and realize like, Hey, the fact that we got the first one was like God wanting this to be my path. Um, because what happened over the next few weeks is nothing happened. What really has to happen is you have to target 50 houses to be able to buy one. We learned that system. We built out that system. We started doing it at a really, really heavy scale. September, 2009, uh, my second daughter was born uh, early, six weeks early. And she was on like oxygen and like a bubbler machine. And I remember thinking, you know, that was because my wife was working nights at a casino while pregnant that her, you know, her water broke way too early. And I was staring at my little baby girl, uh, Charlotte on that ventilator going like, oh my God, I've let my whole family down. Like the, so we had just discovered this new business and I'd done a couple of them and it was like, I've let my family down. Like my wife is, ha was having to do all this. Now it's my baby. Is she going to live? Are her lungs going to be normal? Is this going to affect her for the rest of her life or not? And that was the moment that I went and, um, while I was on leave, uh, you know, for, for that baby for the next two weeks, I ended up buying a house at auction. My dad invested in a house with me because my dad's business had also crashed. He had nothing else working because he was a custom home builder. And in 2009, no one was doing that. And he had a couple hundred thousand in savings. That was it. My dad sent me all of his savings in a cashier's check. I said, hey, I've got this new business plan. I think we can do it. You don't have to pay me any profit at all. Let me just build out the process and we'll do this. 
and see if it works. Like trust in me. And my dad was like, okay, I'm going to trust in you. Um, we buy our first house uh, at auction. Um, you know, and, and like the way that systems work is so like I bought the house for $225,000. The guy next to me also had $225,000 in checks and was bidding against me. If he would have said 225,000, it started at like 200,000. It was like 201, 202, 203, 204. We get near the end of 223. I jump all the way to 225. Luckily, I did that first because if he would have gone to 225, I was out of checks. If I went to 225 yeah. first, he was out of checks. So I get the house because he didn't have it because he didn't say it first. My dad's first house is a, is a success. I quit my job and I tell, yes. I tell um, the guys like, hey, you know, we've worked out a lot through the past few years. Thanks for keeping me around while you did. You guys are going to be fine. I have also stayed around. You guys are going to be fine now without me. And so now's a good time for me to leave and go start my own thing. My dad told his buddy about that first house that we did. Um, and that buddy told like his money manager, hey, I want to pull some money out to go uh, invest yeah. in this thing. His money manager called me and said, um, hey, Aaron, I hear that you're doing this, this, and this. I run an office out of Lake Tahoe. I'd like to meet you. I go up to meet with those guys. And at that time, I'm trying to borrow like $300,000. So I, so they start grilling me. There's a like a whiteboard behind me. How's this process work? Yeah. What are you doing? Um, I start, and you're like 29. Yep. I'm 20. 30. I'm 29. Okay. I'm dressed in like <laughs> jeans and like a golf shirt and the uh, and thinking still. And so the cool thing about that, too, is like a lot of the, a lot of our listeners are younger than that. Right. And so just know at 28, I had zero. I had nothing. And it was and I had already like made a few mistakes along the way and had some resets. 29, I'm presenting to them. I have this brand new idea that is super new because now there was five or six people doing it in Sacramento, but nobody was doing it at scale yet. Everybody was still like buying a house, going and asking people for investments. And as, as they were, so I start presenting to these guys, they're grilling me on a bunch of questions. About three or four hours in, I have this feeling over me. I'm like, oh, Aaron, this is your moment. Like, this is that. You've been waiting for your break. This is your moment. And yeah. so I get chills again. The um, That's why this is so fun right now. So I start telling them Love everything. It. And the so at the end, they go, okay, um, how much money are you looking for? And I said, well, I'd really like a loan of like two or $300,000. And they started kind of laughing and chuckling. And they're like, well, if that's what you want to do, we're not the guys for you. We're guys that like to scale. We want to, we want to build something really, really big. But if you'd be interested in building something really, really big, we'd like to talk about that. And Arnold who um, was my dad's friend. Arnold's still alive today. He's the guy that I call and ask about advice for what happened in the 80s and things like that. Um, at that point, he, he told everybody, you know, I'm going to invest as a partner with Aaron's dad until, you, you know, if you guys do this or not, I'm in. And I'm going to, anything that his dad gets in, I'm going to split so Aaron can at least do twice as many as he was doing. Um, and there was a guy there that used to be the, the, he was the vice president of Apple Asia. You know, there was home builders. There was like six or seven guys sitting around. There were pretty high net worth guys. And then one goes, well, I'm in for a million. Another guy goes, I'm in for a million. I'm in for a million. And all of a sudden I'm driving home at 29 <laughs> with two babies at home. And the, and it was like, oh my gosh, like, can I take everything I've learned up into this point, the construction yeah. stuff for my dad, the, how to do hard work, the systems I've learned as a home builder, and now to do something unique. So I was the first person in Northern California at auction to actually scale on a fund basis where we had a fund that was based on annual returns instead of individual, which gave us mm -hmm. the ability to buy all to buy more houses than anybody else uh, because we were the first people that, because everybody else was looking at, hey, you had to make like 10% 10, 10 a house. 
15% a house. We were looking at, yeah. you know, 15 to 20% annual was our goal. Annually. And I was yeah. doing stuff so fast. Like it was essentially a 90 day turn on the money that we knew if we made 5% on it, I was going to make money. They were going to make money for the next three years. Like to just really quickly summarize that, like that chapter, oh we did over a thousand houses of flips. We delivered millions and millions of dollars uh, to investors. They were making like 20 to 30% annual returns on their money. Uh, my wife became my broker. She was the broker that listed all of the houses. So the, um, I would buy them, I would fix them. She was the broker. Um, and man, it was really, really incredible times. She instantly became one of the biggest brokers in, in Northern California. And we did it. We followed our same home building systems where it was like in home building, you buy land, you develop it, you have a sales team, you have a warranty process. We did the foreclosures the same exact way, except for instead of buying land, we were buying houses, but then we had the construction team. We had the sales team. We would even offer a warranty. So at that time, when people knew they were buying a foreclosure flip, getting a warranty out of it, where they could call us in six months and say, Hey, these, this fan is out. Can you come fix it? We would just do that for free because we had so many people working around. I took everything I knew in home building and applied it uh, to that business. So like come 2012, 2013, you know, we had a bunch, my wife and I had made a bunch of money. We had gotten- That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And if you want to go listen to that one, the first episode in our three-part series, episode 1134. Next up, we have episode 1136. Aaron's story bouncing back with a big bet on real estate. Here's a couple minutes of the second half of the interview or the second of three parts of that interview with me and Shelby Johnson talking about my real estate journey. I know that my next moment's gonna happen. And so I think as an entrepreneur too, you go through enough cycles where then you realize that no matter what, you will find a way to make money. You'll find an opportunity. The, the trouble is being patient in the in between and knowing that sometimes it takes a long time to become an overnight success again. And so the, it's like waiting for those moments. Five or six Funny, months later. Funny, a long time to be, yeah, sorry, no, go on. No, the uh, five or six months later, I get a, a real estate agent send me a apartment for sale in Texas. Funny little part of my story in 2011, I bought a crappy DF level apartment complex in Colleen, Texas, um, you know, through a broker. Only time I'd ever been to Texas, it was horrible. I bought that, that was an asset that ended up helping me during that like crazy time. And but didn't really think too much of it. It was, I was, it was making a little bit of money most of the time, but because it was, a, it was such a low class asset, some months I lost money. Um, but I had this asset, I had this apartment, but what that helped is so she, the lady that was the, the agent on that emailed me this other apartment that was for sale in the title report. And she said, we need to move fast. It's scheduled for auction next week. And it has the rent roll and some other stuff. I look at the title report and I go, Hey, it's scheduled for auction. I'm like, you know what? This is crazy. I tell Kalina, we're like at a camp camping trip. And I said, I'm going to fly to auction uh, down there. I'm going to try to buy this. We had a line of credit that was left because when things went bad, we paid off all of our, our lines of credit and we had a little bit of money uh, available in this line of credit that really that my dad started and my mom was a co-signer on. I pull checks. I fly out to Texas. I'm totally afraid of flying. So I fly to like the closest airport. Instead of doing two flights, I do one that's direct and then I drive three hours so I don't have to get back on a second plane because I was totally sure I was going to die in a plane. I go to auction the, and I'm standing there at auction and the person comes to sell this apartment and it comes out and I brought $325,000 in checks and the opening bid is 320,000. And I'm like, oh my gosh, the, the lady goes to bid it going once, going twice. Do you want to bid? And I freeze and I say, no, I'm not going to bid. And I walk back and I turn around. And so what had happened was I'd lost all my confidence 
I had questioned like, am I really good at auction or not? I must have missed something. If nobody's here buying this, like the, I can't afford to make another mistake. I can't afford this. So all the confidence that I had when I was the guy that had flipped the most house in the world was gone. And I sat there like really refl- like going like, I can't believe it. I called my wife. Hey, I didn't, it came to, did you get it? Well, it came out and I didn't bid on it. What do you mean you didn't bid on it? Like we couldn't even afford your Southwest flight that you did to go out yeah. there. What do you mean? I got cold feet. I got scared. I'm sorry. I'm like, pro- I'm probably crying a bit as I'm doing it. I hang up the phone, just sitting there going, man, that was a waste. Now I got to get back on a plane tonight. Um, and then another auctioneer shows up and he starts selling houses and he starts reading off addresses and selling them for 40,000, 50,000, 60,000. And I look around and nobody is standing there. And I go like, whoa. So when I started auction in 2009 in California, there was three people at auction, hundreds mm-hmm. of houses would sell. When I got put out of business in 2012, there was like three houses going to auction and like hundreds of people bidding. And I kept saying my mantra to God, if I ever get a second chance, I'm going to do it again. And that moment I went, oh my God, Texas 2015, this is my second chance. The, and I was going like, nobody is here. This is so crazy. I fly back home now excited auctions once a month in Texas. I'm like, I think I'm going to go try to do this this next month. Something else that happened when I went broke is I said, man, I flipped thousands of houses and I'm broke and I lost all my money. I have nothing to show yeah. for it. That's a shame. Next, I said, if I would have just kept like a hundred of those houses, I'd have been set for life. So next time I was like, I'm going to do this a little bit different. I fly back to Texas the next month uh, because I've, you know, the funny thing, if you go to Texas, it's once a month. If you've been doing auctions for three years, you've gone to like 20. Well, if you've been going to auctions for a month in California, you've gone to 20. So I had way more experience than anybody else. I had the mm-hmm. software that I built for the other scale and I was able to come out and start buying houses right away. Nobody was there. Really, really great deals. And the first few I flipped just because I needed money in the coffers. And then after that, I would come out and I'd buy about 10 houses a month. I would flip a couple. So we'd have down payment and living money. And then the others we would convert to rentals and rent them out. So from like 2015 to 2020, I did that every month. I'd fly out, you know, buy houses, refinance them, come back. All right. If you like that one, make sure you go back and listen to the rest of episode 1136 with me and Shelby. Next up, here's a couple minutes of my interview with Eric Hatch, episode 1137, the perfect real estate agent blueprint. Eric was really, really brilliant. I met him on a, on a couple's mastermind trip out in the BBI, uh, just a couple weeks before we published this one. If you haven't heard this one, you need to go back and listen to it. But if you don't believe me yet, here's a couple minutes of that one to see if I can get you the hook. I hopped on Facebook and social media right away because I have uh, thousands and thousands of Facebook air quote friends, uh, but I only had a few hundred phone numbers. And so I recognized I could use my Facebook as my CRM. And so I started getting really intentional with direct messages and posting on people's walls. And I wasn't about saying, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. I said, I see you. I see what you're doing. I care about you. And it was all about the give for me. And so that my, my lead generation habits, even 15 years ago, were massively invested. And then I had to time block for lead follow-up. I needed to make sure that I segregated off lead generation and lead follow-up. And I needed to keep those separate. And so I put my head down and I said, all right, for the next hour, I'm going to make sure that I contact uh, at least 20 people. And oftentimes I could get it done in 20 or 30 minutes. And then I segregated and and honored time to do lead follow-up. Who was on my hit list? Who was the person that I was next? Hit list sounds aggressive. But who's this person that I'm going to follow up with? And that was my own Excel sheet that now is a CRM for most people. Uh, But it was my Excel sheet where I just monitored and said, who am I talking to? And who do I need to keep nurturing? 
that simple strategy went from uh, me being a part-time agent to being a full-time agent. My first year as a full-time agent, I sold 52 houses, all from my sphere, referrals, and open houses. The next year, I started a team because that's what everybody does is they start a team when they get really good at sales. That's like saying, I'm so good at swimming, I better go climb a tree. Totally, <laughs> totally different skill sets. I'm so, I'm so good at production and taking care of people that I'm going to throw those out the window and now I'm going to try to lead people on a team. It is irresponsible for most people. Uh, and so we sold 192 houses, but I was 113 of them. I knew how to sell a bunch of houses for me, but I didn't know how to help other people to be successful. And so uh, I then figured out how to help other people to be successful. And now I have folks in my world that are in Fargo, North Dakota, making three, four, and $500,000 a year as their net. And they're working 40 hours a week and they're just following a simple plan. Hey guys, a quick commercial break here, but don't worry. This one is only going to run for the next two or three episodes. I talk so much about the mastermind. It's one of my passions, getting everybody to come hang out in Austin where I get to meet you guys. Well, we just had it you know, a few weeks ago and we decided for next year we were going to do pre-sales. We're only selling 70 tickets total for the whole country. And that way we keep it nice and small where everybody meets everybody and the end of it, it's like a big giant family. Well, we put out the pre-sales last week and in the, during the pre-sales, we sold more than 60 tickets. So there's less than 10 spots left. 10 spots left if you want to join us for the Mastermind for next year. We're putting the date so far out there. You've got no excuses um, to be able to know that the date works. You can put it in your calendar now. And we also set up a payment plan for people to break it up into four easy payments. So if you're one of those people that have thought about going to the Mastermind, have never pulled the trigger, now's the time. And it's for, it's for March for next year. But you got to go sign up now if you want that spot. I don't like selling. I don't like advertising. So we figured we would knock it out quickly. We'd knock it out, you know, this first couple weeks in April for next year. So instead of working on that, we're going to focus on value. If you do join the mastermind, you get to be a uh, join part of our private Facebook group where we do monthly Zoom calls, where we do tactics on those calls. They're really small. There's like, you know, between 10 and 20 people on those. So you get to ask lots of questions and learn from experts. So if you are interested in signing up, go to realestaterockstarsnetwork.com forward slash mastermind real estate rockstars network.com forward slash mastermind go lock in your ticket we have less than 10 spots left you can break it up into four payments so that way it is much easier to to be sure to join and i promise you it is the least expensive mastermind out there for the type of stuff that we're doing you know the go abundance masterminds that i talk about that i'm a part of cost five times what we do for this and i try to deliver twice as much value all right back to the podcast there's a whole lot of stuff we just covered there. So we could stop the podcast right now, 13 minutes in, and people would be excited. But yeah. now they're going to be pausing and going back to do notes. So something you said that I really liked was you know, people practice on the clients instead of on each other. And what's funny is I actually almost give people that advice, right? I say pick up the phone and start dialing. Like If you're afraid of dialing and you're scared or you're afraid of door knocking, just go do it. And I guess that's good advice, but I need to change. I need to adjust my advice to say practice first, role play, like do the research. Yeah. So that way, when you're knocking on the door, you at least know what you're going to say. Mm -hmm. And or when you're doing those calls. So, like, I, I like the idea of practicing first instead of practicing on the people. Because so much time, I'm like, you just got to go. You just got to go get started. Mm -hmm. You just got to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. And you're like, no, it's not as simple as just getting started. Because it's irresponsible to do that. Well, I, I want to say that you're not wrong in, in that perspective from how I see it. And I don't think that I'm wrong. It, it, it's not an either or, it's a both and. 
It, yeah. it is, yes, 100%. You need to pick up the phone. You need to knock the doors. You need to have the conversations with people and not be so gun shy about it. At the same time, you better be practicing for at least a little bit to work on getting better every day. Now, I love to golf. Are you a golfer? Yep. I, love love, I remember us talking very briefly about that. I love to golf, but I hate the driving range and the putting green. Absolutely hate it. I just want to go play golf. And yep. over the last number of years, I probably shaved off six or seven strokes uh, on, on my handicap. But if I actually went 30 minutes earlier to the golf course before my round started and just went to the putting green and just worked on chipping and putting, I bet I would shave off another five or six strokes from my game in the next month. Yeah. If I just practice before I play the game, I still get to play the game. I still get to go out there and do what I love. You should still go out there and make sure that you are making your contacts that you are committed to making to knock on the doors and to make the phone calls and to reach out to people on social media. You should still do that, but just show up a little bit earlier in practice. That's all I'm saying. I think 30 to 45 minutes of diligent focused practice is going to help you as you sharpen that sword to be far better than anybody else. Very, very quickly. It's epic. Great advice. Great advice. I think everybody needs to apply it. All right, so go back and listen to the rest of that one, episode 1137. Next up, here's episode 1138, Supercharge Your Success with a Shift in Mindset with Victoria Velasquez. She had some great, great stories about what they did and how they changed their mindset as soon as COVID hit to really, really thrive as agents in a competitive market. So like early on, I'm sure that for that first year or two, super challenging, right? As you're working both the jobs and you're trying to push yourself through there, like the, you mentioned before, as you were talking to me, like, like having this turning point yeah. like in your, where, where you realize like you really had just had to change the way that you were looking at, at everything. Tell me about that. Yeah. I will never forget that moment. I was sitting in my car. I was feeling super down. I had obviously closed a deal here or there, but you know, I think it like two in a year is nothing right. When you're trying to build a successful business, I was still struggling financially and I had a few leads that I felt like were really amazing, but we had a major inventory problem. I was like, I just feel like I cannot connect the dots. I felt like I was just banging my head up against the wall. And what year was I this? Know this was in 20, uh, four years ago. So 2020, okay. no, 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 2019, no, 2019, 2019. So this was in like 2018, 2019. And I had, we had a team coach at the time who was awesome. And I remember just calling him and being like, I am like, like, I was so low. I was like, what am I going to do? And he was like, you need, you are not in the state or mindset of someone who is successful or has abundance or has business. He's like, you just, I can, I can hear it in you. I can feel it in you. He's like, you need to feel. And he's like, it's not about me. It's about you feeling like you can create some business. Like you're a successful agent. He's like, you need to figure something out that will do that for you. And that was such an unlock for me. And I think it's still been a process, but what I was telling you before is like at this point in my career, I am a hundred percent confident that being successful or not being successful in this business is defined by mindset. Right. And at the time I was just starting to learn that. Right. And this was the first real glimpse into that. And what I did is I basically created some tasks that I could go through. I was like, how can I start being out there and calling agents and, and figure, finding inventory and finding pockets. We do a lot of off-market business in our price point and market. So I was like, how, what can I do? Like, I have to be able to do something. And I just like sat down and came up with a whole process 
for things that worked for me. And I started doing it. And immediately I was like making calls. I had things to do every day, you know, when I came in and even though it necessarily wasn't like I was getting these like leads, I wasn't like getting listing leads. I wasn't maybe doing showings quite yet. Immediately my whole energy shifted. And what I did is I created this method for finding off-market properties, but it, it doesn't matter what the method is. It just has to be something that for you unlocks that feeling of like, I'm a victim. Nothing is working. I'm never going to make it. Why won't anyone buy a house? Why won't anyone write an offer kind of thing to, oh, I'm making things happen. I'm making connections. I'm adding value to my clients. I like am a player in this space. Right. And that was such a big unlock for me that now it's like this toolkit that I go back to. And anytime I'm feeling stuck, which happens, I'm happy to say a lot less frequently, but it happens. Right. And now I'm able to snap out of it so quick. Number one, I feel it when it's coming. So it's like learning that awareness of when you're in that negative headspace. And that's not to say like, you can't be bummed. You, you can be frustrated. You can be sad, but if something genuinely isn't working or whatever, like we're humans, but being really aware of yourself and your own bullshit and being like, this is you being a victim and like, you need to get out of it. And then going to approach that or getting some momentum in your business. I even tell, you know, agents that ask me and that, you know, I mentor or whatever, I tell them like, it may not even be real estate related. Like, is there another area of your life that you can get good energy going? Cause your whole life blends together, right? Like if it's working out, if it's taking good care of yourself, if it's getting good sleep, if it's throwing an event for your friends and family, if it's getting involved with a charity, like do something that makes you feel successful in some area of your life. And that's going to bleed into other areas of your life. Yeah. The so much of success is, is like this all around life success. Mm -hmm. There's times when people are asking me like, Hey, it's like, like social media. Like, why do you share so much about exercise like when you're when you're a real estate investment guy why do you share so much about like you know saunas or getting ivs or like cryo chambers and all and all the extra stuff and it's because it all it all works together right so my success 100%. as a real estate investor like has to do with the fact that i can do ironman races like all of it all of it combines together so i think it's great so you figured out like not only was the mindset like it's having to tell you like getting into that headspace to go it's almost like the Tony Robbins type stuff. Go, no, I am successful. No, I am successful. I'm not going to wait for it to happen. I am going to be this person. So what advice would you give a brand new agent? So somebody that's trying to start out right now, trying to go grow their business. What's the first thing they should be doing when it comes to either or their daily habits or what we are, or what should they, what advice would you give them when they're just getting started? What do they need to know? Yeah, I would say prioritize learning above all else. And when I say that examples of that are maybe joining a team versus being on your own, prioritize putting yourself in an environment where you're going to have access to deals, whether they're yours or someone else's, where that you can learn from them. You can see how other people talk to their clients, how they prospect, how they bring in business. Like, I think that is the single most important thing. And it far more important than money. Obviously I get it. I was struggling for so long. All I wanted was a paycheck, but the most important thing, like you will exponentially grow your career. And this is such a snowball business that in the beginning, if you do it right, you're going to shorten that time to success, to hitting your goals so much. If you just prioritize learning, apprenticing, like work for free, like do whatever you need to do, but just get access so you can hit the ground running. Yeah. I really, really like that. We can be, you got to learn, put yourself in the right spot because then you get to be whoever you want to be. 
All right, if you liked that interview and you missed it, go back and listen to the rest of episode 1138. Next up, here's episode 1139 from Military to Real Estate Millionaire with David Perret. The, the biggest thing that people need to understand is that when a lender or somebody tells you that something is not true about the VA loan or that you can't do something with the VA loan, that you need to ask where that is in the VA guidelines. Because 90% of the time, it's a overlay from a lender and not actually the guidelines. And so the lender themselves won't play ball or can't do that thing. And yet the, the VA itself wouldn't care because the VA, the guidelines on the VA loan themselves are ridiculously loose. Prime example, the VA has no minimum credit score, does not have a DTI requirement, and like, there's all kinds of other ridiculous things. Um, so per the VA, you could have a 10 credit score and be qualified to buy a house. Now, good luck finding a lender, but I know lenders who will close with a 500 credit score. Uh, I've seen a lender close with a 78% back-end DTI, <laughs> um, and they closed it in 18 days <laughs> on a $1.93 million house in Venice Beach, zero down. <laughs> so, uh, you know, when I hear people say, oh, the VA can't do, I'm like, ah, probably can. You just need a different lender. Yeah. What advice would you give to new people now based on what you're doing, right? Like, what would you have done different as you're building your journey or would you have done different? So, like, if, if I said, what should my strategy be, David? So, I'm getting started. I want to start investing in real estate. I get those messages every single day. Uh, from agents, hey, I want to start investing in real estate. Where do I start? You know, and the and so based on your experience, what would you recommend people do, and what are something that they could learn from? You know, your ways that you 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 would do better next time if you had another chance. Oh, the the first thing is I would have gone much bigger on my first property. So that duplex, you know, I bought for eighty thousand dollars is a great little property, but I was pre-approved for one hundred and fifty thousand. And, or maybe 160 even, and I could have easily gotten into a fourplex, which probably on a fourplex, I probably could have gotten approved for 200,000 with the way DTI works and everything. And I didn't even consider that because I was nervous about, you know, is this the right decision? Let's not go a hundred percent all in and, and play it safe and go with the duplex. It's still a good test of whether or not this is a good idea, but it's not quite as risky. And I've kicked myself the, the, for years about one, that. You would have said, go bigger on your first one. Absolutely. Your, your first With a three and a half percent down. For more, especially at the, where, where the rates were. If you've got, if you've got good rates and it cash flows, uh, don't be afraid to go big on your first one. Yeah. Those primary residence mortgages are the best. So when you're locking in a house act, you know, go for that, that gnarly fourplex that's going to pay you to live in it. I mean, I lived for pretty much free in that duplex. I would have been able to do the same thing in the fourplex. And it would have returned a way, a way better ROI over the same period of time. All right. If you like that episode and you want to go hear more about David's uh, process from going from military to real estate millionaire, go listen to episode 1139. Next up, here's episode 1140. Build the business of your dreams with a vivid vision with Jennifer Hootie. Man, this interview was a lot of fun. I've been uh, working with Jennifer for many, many years. I had her as a coach several years ago about with one of my businesses, and she has really taken off. I'm a huge fan of this vivid vision concept. Here's a couple minutes of that interview. So, and when you're talking about vivid vision, right? I think that exercises the idea of, 
you know, taking your business and saying, what do I want my business to look like in the future? How far in the future should people be looking? I had a, I ta- had a talk with a gal yesterday and I said like, hey, what's your, what's your three-year plan? What's your five-year plan? What do you want to be when you grow up? Mm-hmm. Right. And so if you're trying to give someone guidance on how to come up with that vision, how far ahead should they be looking and how should they write it? Yeah, I think there's there's a, a few different approaches that you can take. There's definitely value in asking the question, okay, what do I want my life to look like 10, 20, 30, 50 years out? But with the vivid vision, we specifically say three years. Um, three years out. And the reason why is because when you start to go 10 or five or 10 years out, especially right now where we're in this pocket of rapid change, you can't be super vivid with it. It it starts to become a little bit vague and a little bit general because there's so many variables that can change over five or 10 years. I mean, even most of the social media platforms weren't or were around just coming on the map five or excuse me, 10 years ago. Yeah. But then one year is short enough where or too short where you're really coming up with a plan or a goal, not a vision. And I oftentimes say, if you know exactly how something's going to happen, it's a plan. It's not a vision. And so there's value in coming up with a strategic plan for a year. But that three years is a sweet spot where if you were to step inside your future, three years into the future and paint the picture of exactly what you want it to look like, you can get vivid and specific enough, uh, be able to tell the story, but it's far enough where you really get, you have to stretch into what's possible. Hey, real estate rock stars. We only have a few minutes left in this episode, but before we get to the grand finale, I just want to say, as always, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. You know, podcasts are obviously free. You don't have to pay to listen to the podcast, but if you could pay one thing, if I could charge you one thing to listen to this podcast, what I would ask you to do is go, please make a review. Go to wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's on YouTube or on Apple or Android, wherever you listen to podcasts, and go give me a review of the podcast. I read them. I listen to them. I try to make adjustments. You know, a couple of years ago, I had a ton of bad reviews on the sound quality or the number of advertisements, things like that. And I've really tried to dial in to add value for all of you guys. So please, please, please go do a review. If you want to get a, a copy of the toolbox of the stuff that you know, everybody that comes on the show, they give us some tactics. They give us something that we put in what we call our toolbox. And so to get that, you go to realestaterockstarsnetwork.com. When you get there, click on the, the toolbox and you get access to the free gift that every person that we interview on the episode provides. There's things like, you know, uh, listing tactics, how to do a presentation, you know, how to do a newsletter, all sorts of cool, fun stuff. And if you want to talk to me, go find me on Instagram at Aaron Amuchastegui. Ask me a question. I talked to so many of you guys on there. All right, back to the show. Thanks again for being a listener. Dude, it's such a great point that the, especially now, like a five and 10 year vision. I mean, I don't know, like the, some of the stuff that's out there, I don't know if it was around five years ago, right? Like, and things like chat GPT and some of like the AI that's coming online every two weeks, we're seeing wild changes. Do you have any fun stories about just the power of the vivid vision with any, any companies out there that have implemented oh my gosh. this? So many. Okay. So we work with a, a company out of Canada and when we help them craft their vivid vision, um, 
they were in the cannabis space. They were doing about $10 million in revenue. And there is common blocks that come up that are super normal when, when an entrepreneur is creating their vivid vision. So for them, there was this fear around capping themselves of, okay, if we write down a revenue number, so three years into the future, they want to do 50 million. They're like, is that capping ourselves? And my response is no, because the idea is it's a target. And then there's sometimes that, am I, am I thinking too big? You know, am I, am I going way too far out that now it becomes elusive and we can't really get connected to it? So there is a sweet spot that you find, but they ended up, you know, hitting a sweet spot that as soon as they created their vivid vision, a lot started to lock into place because there was so much clarity with the partners and the opportunities that they were looking for. Cause now they were, asking a bigger question, okay, what gets us to 50 million versus what has us grow 20% this year? So immediately when they had this big stretchy goal, they had to start looking at opportunities a completely different way. They had to look at their business model a completely different way. They ended up hitting the $50 million mark within 18 months um, in pursuit of the, the three-year vivid vision. And so one of the key lessons in that is um, I'll have a lot of business coaches challenge me and what's realistic. And I'm here to take a stand of, of finding that balance where it's not, I, I'm not going for realistic, like find a data anal uh, analyst for that. But I'm also not saying, you know, go so pie in the sky that nobody on everybody on your team, including you thinks that it's, a bunch of bullshit, but you got to find that sweet spot where it's exciting, but it scares you. And then when you make that claim, not knowing the how is actually a superpower in that moment because it requires your brain to think completely different uh, when and how you're going to build to that. All right. If you like that one and you didn't get it, go back and listen to the rest of episode 1140 with Jennifer Hootie. And that's it. Those were our interviews from April. Hopefully you guys got a lot out of today's jam-packed episode where you got to hear a few minutes of each of those superstars that I got to interview in April. You know, reach out to me, send me a message on Instagram. Let me know which ones were your favorite and if there were any that you went back and listened to. And if you like these best of episodes, I'd love to hear that too. Guys, as this year is coming, we're almost to our halfway point. Hopefully you're putting your foot on the gas. We're seeing the real estate market make a lot of adjustments. You know, median prices are down in a lot of places, but we're still seeing a seller's market when it comes to inventory. We're in this kind of weird standstill market and the best thing you can do is to arm yourself. And remember, you've got to kind of be changing the goalpost right now. In most markets, regardless of price, there are less transactions happening right now. And if transactions have gone down by 20 or 30%, that means if your volume has gone down by less than that, you're still growing. So don't get discouraged. Keep your foot on the gas and finish 2023 strong. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>